0: wonderful. Please go ahead and grab your seats, please. A few people are saying, man, this church has really grown. I let them know, no, people are just back from their holidays. So welcome back. It's good to be back together again. And I'd be grateful if you turn in your Bible, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. Today we are starting a new series, a small five-part series called The Race of Our Lives. And it's a series that I really felt the Lord put on my heart some months ago. And accordingly, as with me and the style that I tend to preach, that means I've been really excited about it for several months. Because my friends, we really are in, as Christians, the race of our lives. It is the greatest race. Indeed, it is the greatest race of all. And I believe the Lord for five weeks wants us to shine a light on this race. A race that you're all in. So we're going to read the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12 together, verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord, we have worshipped you in song. And Lord, as we've sang and allowed the word of God to dwell in us richly, I can't help but sense that you have prepared us for this moment. Lord, there have been lines throughout each and every song that I couldn't help but perceive popping out to us this morning. Lord, you're preparing us for your word. And so, Lord, you do have your way amongst us. Lord, as I preach, would you do know what a preacher can do? Would you change hearts? Would you open eyes, would you open ears to hear the word? Lord, would we would we get out of our Christian bubble for a moment and just gaze at you and allow your word to have its way in our hearts? Speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favourite books, as many if not all of you would know, is C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I remember as a kid, I was amazed with it, just like so many other kids are across the world when they come across it. And the following is one of my favourite sections in the book. It's the moment when Susan and Lucy arrive at the altar where Aslan has been sacrificed. And this is the moment. They approach the hill and see the altar where Aslan was slaughtered and they're mystified and confused because all they see is that there is a big crack in the stone. The rising of the sun had made everything look so different. All colors and shadows were changed and for a moment they couldn't see the most important thing. And then they did. The stone table was indeed broken into two pieces from end to end, but there was no Aslan. Oh, cried the two girls rushing to the table. It's just too bad, sobbed Lucy. They might have left the body alone. Who's done it, cried Susan. What does it mean? Is it more magic? Yes, cried a great voice from behind their backs. It is more magic. They turned around and there, shining larger than they had ever seen him before. Shaking his mane stood Aslan. Oh, Aslan, cried both of the children. "'staring up at him as much frightened as they were glad. "'Aren't you dead then, dear Aslan?' said Lucy. "'Not now!' said Aslan. "'You're not... not a...' said Susan in a shaky voice. "'She couldn't bring herself to say the word ghost.' "'Aslan stooped his golden head and licked her forehead. "'The warmth of his breath and a rich sort of smell "'that seemed to hang about his hair came all over her. "'Do I look it?' he says. "'Oh!' You're real. Oh, Aslan, cried Lucy. And both girls flung themselves upon him and covered him in kisses. And then Susan asked, as they sat with Aslan, But what does it all mean? What does it all mean? Now, I submit to you that there is not a more important question in the entirety of the book. What does it all mean? Aslan all the way through in C.S. Lewis' betrayal is appointed to Christ. and So Aslan in his life and death and resurrection is appointed to Christ. There is no more important question in the entirety of the book that could be asked as to what it all means. And when it comes to Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 to 2, I think once again there is no more important question that we can ask than this one. What does this all mean? What, what does it mean that we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses? What does it mean that we're to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely? And what does it mean to run with endurance through race that is set before us? They're such familiar verses, but hand on heart, what does it all mean? Well, that's what I want us to look at this morning as I open this series entitled The Race of Our Lives. I want us to look at what it all means. If you're a believer here this morning, I pray that this envisions you and encourages you and excites you and amazes you because this is your story. This is the high and holy calling on your life as a believer. And if you're not a believer here this morning, I pray that even as you hear the preached word, you would flee from your sin and run to Jesus and then join us on this race. What does it all mean? Well, it means three things. And here's the first thing that I want us to get from this text. What does it all mean? Well, number one, it means realizing we're in a race. Realizing you and I as Christians are actually in a race. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This metaphor of a race is often used for the Christian faith in the New Testament. We see it in 1 Corinthians 9, we see it in Philippians chapter 3, and 2 Timothy chapter 4 and Galatians 5, to name but a few. It is a common metaphor that is insisted upon as to what the Christian life actually looks like for the glory of God. And my friends, when you examine this text and understand the race, oh my, what a race this is. It is a race in which we get to love people, and serve people, and encourage people, and care for people. It's a race where we get to make disciples of all nations. And there are many nations, and in God's kindness, He's brought many nations right to us here in Sydney. We get to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we get to live our lives in a way that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. That's what this race is all about. Listen, the Christian life is not a saunter or a stroll. It is not a dawdle or a dance. It is a race. And it is a race that you and I have all been enlisted to. The race is laid out before us. God has prepared it before the foundation of the earth. He's then called you to it and he's called you to run with endurance in the race of our lives. And in Hebrews chapter 12, you can't help but be reminded of that reality. There's no escaping it. This is not a dawdle for Jesus. This is not a saunter for Jesus. No, this is a race. And as I examine this text this, this, this week, I, I couldn't help but also be amazed of how incredible it is that we get to be running in this race at all. I mean, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, he, he talks about who we were before we even got into the race. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, he he reminds us of who you and I were before we got in the race. He says, As for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. My friends, that's our story. That's who we were. Before you ever even dreamed of a race, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You freely followed the way to the world. You were sinning in your heart, and you didn't even mind, and neither did I. You were running, but you were running headlong to hell. You were running away from the Lord, disinterested in the Lord. And he could have left you there, but he didn't. Verse 4 of chapter 2 in Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy, what good news this is, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. What a happy reality that is, don't you think? By grace you have been saved. Paul then goes on to tell us in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 what that all means. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you're alive together with Christ. You've been forgiven of your sin. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. You've been reconciled to God. You can now know Him as Father and Savior and Redeemer. You can know for sure that heaven is going to be your home. For all eternity you will be with him. And even in the now, he's adopted you into his family. You who were once his enemies are now seated at his table. And he's given you the Holy Spirit, a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance, guaranteeing that you will make it. That's what Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is all about. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, the pivot verse, he says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling that you received. In light of it all, in light of who you are, in light of what Christ has done for you, I therefore urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling you received. does that matter? It's the race. Run in the race. Run hard, run passionately, run wholeheartedly in the race that he's assigned for you. You get it? We're not called to live our lives in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. We're called to be motivated by Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and live in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, which is the great race. The race that each and every one of us has been called to. The Christian life. It is not a saunter or a stroll. It is not a dawdle or a dance. It is a race. If we don't understand that, we are in a world of hurt already. You're in a race. There's a number on your back and a number on your front. And when you bow the knee to say, Jesus, I want to follow you, the first thing he does is say, awesome, get your kit on. You're in a race. It isn't a saunter or a stroll or a dawdle or a dance. It's a race. And what a privilege it is that we get to run it at all, don't you think? The people that were dead in our transgressions and sins that he saves by grace and then says, all right, let's go. Let's run. And as I was thinking about this metaphor this week of a race, I was just freshly grateful to the Lord for the metaphor because one of the things I love about metaphors is they give you expectations, don't they? And I think they give you reasonable expectations of what we can expect in something. It's good. It's good to know and helpful to know that the Christian life is a race. But the more you let that sort of percolate through from your head to your heart, the more you realise, hey, Races sound difficult. Like marathon races? We're not all Andrew Layson, you know, who just runs mega moths. For the rest of us, it's like, this sounds like really hard. It's probably going to take training, it's going to take blood, it's going to take sweat, it's going to take tears. I'm probably going to have times when I'm really tired. This sounds uncomfortable. Uh huh. Exactly. And that's my second point. Realising we're in a race that is not always going to be easy. Realising that you and I are in a race that is not always going to be easy. In all all honesty, this embraced realisation that it's not always going to be easy, I honestly believe, forms one of the most significant growth points in a Christian's life. When they realise It's not going to be easy. And I think it marks a particularly significant growth point in the Christian's life, particularly in the Western church. See, if you live in places like Nepal or Pakistan or Libya or Syria, many places where we have sovereign grace churches, you know this is not going to be easy because you're getting beaten for your faith. You're getting mocked for your faith. Some are losing their lives for their faith. When they signed up for Christianity, they knew it wasn't going to be a dawdle. They knew I'm going to be all in and this may cost me my life. In those types of places, this this type of topic takes on a different entity. It's more of an encouragement. Whereas for us, it really is a clarifying message, isn't it? Helping us see, you know, I may not be in Nepal or Pakistan or Libya or, or Syria, but I am in a race. You see, in the West, in all honesty, I think for so many, the Christian life isn't so much a race, it's more of a day spa. So they just spend their entire life in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And oh, oh, this is lovely. I'm a Christian. He's forgiven me, He's adopted me, Heaven is my home. And then they take their seats and they take their coffee. Oh, life's a bit hard. Um, Job's not going as well as I'd hoped. And Yeah, I think God's just letting me down in in so many different ways. And they start to think as if my whole life is about God pampering me in some type of day spa. I take my seat and he strokes my head and he does my nails. And the moment he stops and I feel uncomfortable, it's like, where's he gone? Do you see how far removed we are from countries like Pakistan and Nepal and Syria where they're dying for the faith? Here, small things happen in lives, maybe not insignificant things, but, but small things in comparison to death. And we start to point the finger at God as if saying, like, I'm uncomfortable. Where have you gone? Whoever said this race was going to be comfortable? That is a culturally imbibed inaccuracy. Because in the Bible, what I see is we are in a race, and everybody knows races aren't always easy. Yes, there are good points in a race, there is joy in a race, you know where you're going in a race, but there are times when you want to give up, the times when you don't want to do it anymore, the times when you're hurting and you think, what am I even doing this for? We are in a race, and we must realize that this race is not always going to be easy. my friends, that is exactly the tone in which this text is preparing us for this race. Helping us see it's not going to be easy. And also preparing us then for that reality. It does it actually in the very first word. Verse 1. Therefore, 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 it always points us, whenever you read a therefore in the Bible, right? What does it mean? It means you look back and say, okay, it's in light of something else. What does it mean? Therefore, since we we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Therefore, okay, who are this cloud of witnesses? Well, for that, we have to go back to Hebrews chapter 11. That's where the therefore is coming from. And in Hebrews chapter 11, we are placarded before our eyes what can only be known as the faith hall of fame. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, hey, listen, in your race, I want you to remember them. Because they were men and women just like you. And I want want you to remember that they finished their race. And I want you to remember that God was faithful to them again and again and again. He's preparing us for the reality that this is not going to be a day spa for Jesus. It's going to be hard. But remember those that have gone before you. Remember how they ran and remember how God was faithful to them. In Hebrews chapter 11, then, we're introduced to many heroes of the faith. But ultimately, people that are just like you and I. You're introduced, first of all, then to Noah, a man who was warned by God of events yet unseen. He started building an ark. Imagine if God caused you to do that and you live in West Pennant Hills. People are like, you are a nutter. That's exactly what happened to Noah. And yet in faith, he kept going. Everybody must be walking past going, you are an idiot. You're out of your mind. But he just keeps hammering away. Because in faith, he understands, I can trust God. And this is what God wants me to do. Sarah, a woman who believed God was faithful, even into her old age. God had promised her a child, and yet she's getting older and older and older. She is, humanly speaking, well past the years of childbearing. People start to look on and go, what on earth are you thinking? It's not happening. But she believed God. He is faithful. I can keep running this race. I can trust him. Abraham, a man who is tested by God even to the call to sacrifice his son. A son that he had been waiting for for years. A son that arrives. A son that he loves with all his heart. And God says, I want you to love me even more than your son. I want you to sacrifice your son. What a big ass! And yet that's ultimately exactly what Abraham said about doing. He walked for three days to Mount Moriah and graciously God provided another. But Abraham was going to go ahead and do it and he actually says that the reason why I was going to do it is because I believe God is faithful, God is good and if he wants to, he will raise my son from the dead. That's faith. Then there's Moses, a man who considered the affliction of his people more than the enjoyments of the royal palace of Egypt. He had it all going on. He's living in a palace. His life is made. And yet he looks on at the the affection of the Hebrews and he's aware they are ultimately my people. I need to go. And he doesn't do a great job of going about it. First of all, he kills a guy and it gets awkward and he has to do a runner for 40 years. But then God speaks to him out of the bush. And he says, hey, listen, I want you to go back. Now's your time. Moses isn't so keen the second time around. But with his knees knocking, he faithfully goes, doesn't he? He's faithfully standing there at the Red Sea. Two million people looking on, thinking, You are an idiot. What have you done? And he stands there, just him and God effectively, and he puts his staff out, saying, Lord, I trust you. And God passed the sea. They're just normal people. They're not people part of the Trinity. They're just like you and I. We can have conversations with them. Yet they believed. Gideon, a man who was made stronger as his army continued to be made smaller. Rahab, A woman of Jericho who risked her life to protect the spies of Israel, believing, Your God, I believe, is God. Will you help me? And she was willing to risk her life for that reality. In chapter 11, verse 32, we're then introduced to a whole load more men. Men like Samson, Barak, Jephthah, David, Samuel, Daniel, and the prophets. Men who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword and were made strong out of weakness. There are lists of men. These are the people I want you to think about. And then in verse 35, there are women, other heroes of the faith. The writer says, some of whom who were tortured, refusing to accept release, others who suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Some who were stoned or sawn in two or killed with a sword, and then others still who were in the skin who went around in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. In Hebrews chapter eleven, there is no idea at all that Christianity is a day spa. They understood this is going to be hard. And for the joy that is set before me, I'm going to run and all glory to the Lord. And I will do it with faith and persistence, trusting in him and finding joy in all things. But I do not assume it's always going to be easy. Hebrews chapter 11 teaches us that the Christian life is no day spa. But make no mistake, all of those people in chapter 11 now make up the great cloud of witnesses that he's talking about in chapter Well, the great cloud of witnesses is not just everybody who's gone before. No. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, therefore, he sent all these saints of old that finished their race, all these saints of old that made it, I want you to realize, church, and realize in your life that your life is being run in a great colosseum, and there are men and women of old who are surrounding your race and cheering you on and saying, keep going. Don't stop. Keep running your race. He was faithful to me. He was faithful to us. He will be faithful to you. Keep running your race. Do you see it? Your race is being run in the great colosseum of life but you are not alone. There are thousands around you looking on saying, hey listen, Amy, Janelle, John, keep going. I'm calling your numbers out. Don't give up. You're running in the race. He was faithful to us. He will be faithful to you. The great cloud of witnesses. Hear them today. This race is not always going to be easy but what a picture and reality it is when you realize this race is being run with thousands around me J.C. Ross says this about the cloud of witnesses he says the writer of Hebrews calls upon us to remember these saints in their troubles and take courage are we frail earthen vessels so were they are we weak and encompassed with infirmities so are they Are we exposed to temptation and burdened with his body of corruption? So are they. Are we afflicted? So are they. Have we trials and cruel mockings? So are they. But what could we possibly be called upon to suffer, which they had not endured? So take courage, fainting Christians. You are encompassed with a great cloud of witnesses. They all journeyed on in bitterness and tears like your own, and yet not one of them did perish, for they all reached home. How wonderful! There is a great cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on, telling us, We made it. We made it because God is faithful. So will you. Keep running your race. It is not always going to be easy. That's what He's trying to prepare us for. He then carries on. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Once again, doesn't sound like a day spa. Sound like it's gonna take effort. You have to lay things aside and you have to push things off that cling to you. Have you ever heard somebody cling to you? Like genuinely cling to you? You know, somebody who's had five kids. I know a cling on when I see one, you know. There are times in your life. When the kids grab you and they grab you so tight that you're like, just get off. And you have to like really push because you're like, you just, yeah. It takes effort to actually get rid of something that is clinging onto you. And what the writer to the Hebrews here is telling us listen. Every weight and sin which clings so closely, that will stop you running in the race. It will slow you down in the race. You need to be light for the race, so so get hold of it, lay it aside, put off what clings so closely. My friends, that's why in Sovereign Race Church we have growth groups. That's why they exist. It's not to come just to care for each other. No, it's to come and become more like Christ through putting sin to death and putting on the new self. That's what a growth group is. Why? Well, because of Hebrews chapter twelve, verse one. It's not like a random sovereign grace idea, it's because of Bible implications. We're in a race. You know, Ravi Zacharias says sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. It's so true. You know, when it comes to your race, do you know what the greatest enemy is for your race? You. The greatest enemy in your race is the enemy within. It's the sin and the weight which clings so closely. And what Satan does is when we start sinning in the air, we give him a foothold and he certainly takes hold of that. And instead of you sprinting on in this race, he calls you over and says, Hey, let's have a, just, just come here a minute. Come here. You know that sovereign grace church, they just I don't even know what they're in about. You need to be comfortable in your life. Come, come. Let's just have a chat. Come here. I love you. I love you more than them. Come on. You know what you're doing? You're not even running in the race anymore. Sin clings closely. And it has an annoying habit to take us further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. You know, as a pastor for the last 20 years, one of the saddest things that I experienced in my life is when you warn somebody and you try and help somebody, they will not listen to you. And then one, two, three years later, they're in your office in tears, wondering how they got there. And there is no sense of, I told you so. But there is every grief as a pastor that this could have been avoided. You stopped running in the race. Your sin distracted you. Your idols pulled you away. We tried to help you in that. You wouldn't listen. This race is going to take effort. Grace-motivated effort. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay, also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why endurance? Well, because it ain't a walk or a stroll or a dance. There's no seats at the side for little rests. You're going to need to keep going and going and going and going and never, ever giving up. This race, my friends, is not always going to be easy. But the great cloud of witnesses look on and say, Hey, listen, we made it. So will you. Keep looking up. Keep trusting. He's good. He is faithful. Keep laying aside those weights and those sins. They are going to cling closely. They're going to try and distract you from the race. Keep laying them off and keep enduring. Don't give up. And yet what I also love about these verses in terms of what it all means, is number three. Realizing we're in a race that will be totally worth it. And my friends, it will. Because quite clearly, there is another face in the crowd seen here. Another face. A face like no other. Indeed, the audience of one. Look again, at the verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. My friends, there is another face to be seen in the crowd and it is indeed a face like no other. It is the face of the one who got us into the race. The one who is taking center stage in the Colosseum overlooking your life is the one who died in our place. The one who called you and gifted you a number on your front and on your back to run in his race. He's the one that sustains us. He's the one who gives us grace for the race. He tells us, I won't leave you as orphans. This race isn't going to be easy. I'm not going to leave you as office. I'm going to come to you through the gift of the Holy Spirit and I will live in you to help you and sustain you and keep cheering you on. But he's not only the founder and perfecter of faith. Because he is the founder and perfecter of faith, he's also the one who will greet us at the finish line. This race has a destination. And that destination is Jesus. And you're not there yet. That's why you're still here, listening to me. But one day you will be there. And that day has a habit of coming quicker than you think. And what a day it will be when we actually get to see his face. Do you want to put us in the race? Brandy Alcorn in his book Deadline describes for us what that day might be like to a character called Finney who has just passed away. And this then is his story. A chorus of welcomes sang out, some in languages he didn't know, but all of which he instinctively understood. Each bid him come in and make himself at home. Finney felt like a miner rescued from a collapsed cavern and emerging to excited well-wishers in the land of the living. Except... This was his first time here, and he wasn't sure how things worked, but he knew he was going to have the time of his life finding out. At the fringes of the crowd stood a group of a dozen beings who seemed to be of the same race as the towering figure who left the hospital room with him. The back of the crowd stood one being glowing with a soft light that did not blind, but attracted and captivated the eyes. He smiled at Finney, who trembled with joy at the immediate realisation that Of who it was. To this moment he'd stood quietly. Absorbing all this. Delighting in it. Smiling knowingly as if he were the one who'd arranged it. And indeed. Finney knew that that's what he had done. For this was the ageless one. The ancient of days. Who was eternally young. He stepped forward and at his first move. The crowd quickly and reverently made way for him. As flimsy shacks made way for a hurricane. This was a good hurricane. But no one mistook goodness for weakness here. He who had spun the galaxies into being with a single snap of his finger, he who could uncreate all that existed with no more than a thought, extended his hand to Finney, as if the hand he extended was that of a plain, ordinary carpenter. Everyone knew he was anything but ordinary. His riveting eyes commanded their full attention. All eyes were fixed on those eyes. For the moment, it was impossible to look elsewhere and no one in his right mind would have ever wanted to. Welcome, my son. Enter the kingdom prepared for you by virtue of a work done by another, a work you could not do. Here you shall receive reward for those works you did in my name, works you were created to do. And then with a smile that communicated more than any smile Finney had ever seen, the Great One looked into his eyes and said with obvious pride, Well done. My good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. As the crowd broke out in cheers, Finny felt overwhelmed and dropped to his knees, then flat on the ground face down as if the knees were still too lofty a position before the Lord of heaven. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw everyone else follow his lead and fall flat. Mostly this was out of respect for the one before whom they bowed. But Finny also sensed the emulation of his former worship was out of respect for him perhaps as the new arrival, the party's guest of honour. Rise, my son. You bowed your knee to me in the other world, where it was much harder to do. I know your devotion and I treasure it. So stand now before me. You have made your exodus from mortality to life. This is the new world, which I've made for you to enjoy. Fanny rose up and the welcoming committee rose to a half step behind him. But he gazed into those eyes that could have killed him with a look, which instead conveyed unmistakable approval. But he could also sense something more in those great eyes, something different than he would have expected. And then Finney's gaze moved to those carpenter's hands that had been placed on his shoulders. On them he saw deep and ugly scars. Flinching at the sight, he looked down at his feet. They too were torn in a ghastly disfigurement. How could this be? All was to be perfect here, was it not? The first of many surprises. In a flash of insight, Finney knew what every child understands about heaven, that everybody there would be perfect, unblemished and unscarred. But now he saw that the scars of earth were not pretend or imaginary, but very real, and could only be gone here because someone else had chosen to take them on himself. The carpenter's scars would remain forever. The only one who would appear less than perfect in eternity would be the eternally perfect one himself. Finney looked into his eyes again, knowing they saw every thought within him. And the perfect and scarred one simply said, For you, my son. For you. My friends, in that moment, Finney's heart, I believe, would have wanted for nothing else. Because he was meeting the founder and perfecter of his faith. In that moment, his gaze would have been filled with the audience of one and he wouldn't have wanted anything else because this is him. You are the one that died in my place. You are the one who sustained me. You are the one that gave me the gift of the race. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of his faith. Well, my friends, in light then of that moment to come for each and every one of us in the room, in light of that moment to come, when we too will meet the founder and perfecter of our faith. I simply want to encourage you then, in light of that moment, may we all then with passion and faith and endurance run this race today. And I assure you that when you meet the founder and perfecter of your faith, you will know with absolute glory It was totally worth it. Don't meet him and wish you would run harder or more or with more endurance. Meet him leaning into the finish line. And what a day that will be when he looks at you and says, you know what? Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your eternal rest. What then does it all mean? What does Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2 mean? What it means is that we really are in the race of our lives. We have been called by grace. We are sustained by grace. There is a stadium around each and every one of us that is packed to the rafters with the faithful men and women of old. Cheering us on. Calling your name and your number out. Keep going. He was faithful to us. He'll be faithful to you. So my friends, looking then to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, may we then passionately and enduringly run. A whole year as a church stands out before us. Would it not be a stroll or a saunter? Would it not be a dawdle or a dance? Would it be a race? Would all glory go to him? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it washes over us and encourages us and envisions us. Lord, when it comes to understanding our lives and what our lives are ultimately all about, your word makes it plainly clear. We're in a race. We've been made and designed by you to run. Lord, I pray them for all those that maybe even now are aware they haven't been running. They've been distracted. Maybe with weights, maybe with sin, which clings so closely. Lord, I pray in this moment through faith they would put off all those things and prepare their hearts afresh to run. Lord, we are a distractible people. Well, Lord, thank you for envisioning us afresh. And Lord, would you help us by your grace and for your glory to run this year with faith, with passion, with endurance. And would we have eyes for one? The audience of one. You. Would we run for you? And would every day be worship? You're worthy of it all. In Jesus' name. Amen.